0: welcome to the british history podcast my name is jamie and this is episode 440 this is fine this show is ad free due to member support and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent i offer members-only content including extra episodes and rough transcripts and you can get instant access to all the members extras by signing up for membership at the british Podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month and thank you very much to michael Annalisa, and bella for signing up already King Malcolm and the Scots had spent the last several months raiding the northern reaches of England. They had murdered the English with impunity, took even more as slaves. But eventually, they decided that they'd had their fill and they returned back to their homeland. And they took with them anything that hadn't been nailed down. That was the last thing that Northumbria needed. And some of you might be thinking right now, How on earth did the Scots find anyone to kill or enslave after William's harrying? And that's a good question. Well, here's the thing about the Normans. This whole invasion was one big business plan. And the killing and pillaging was just step one. The real economic gains happened afterwards when they took the land and occupied it. So after the harrying came the settlement. And I'm not talking about replacing the leadership, which they obviously did. It wasn't like the new Earl of Northumbria, Bishop Walcher, was a local guy selected by the Northumbrians. He was a Lotharingian selected by William. But that replacement didn't stop there. The Normans replaced land ownership and land occupation at pretty much every level. This whole time, the North was being repopulated by the Normans. And it turns out that there were a lot of people who were more than happy to move north in exchange for some free stuff. And there were people who apparently weren't too concerned about what had happened to the previous owners. For the Northumbrians who had survived the massacre, they must have been living through an absolutely enraging reality. And they resented, understandably, this absolute flood of colonizing Richards, Williams, and Rogers, as well as this one guy who called himself Walter. But at the same time, there wasn't much they could do about it. And given how well the previous rebellions had gone, accepting the new regime in exchange for a bit of a reprieve from the massacres, well, it was probably about the best deal they were going to get. But then Malcolm and the Scots invaded. And Walcher and the Normans didn't do a thing to stop it. And that got the Northumbrians talking. Meanwhile, across the channel, William wasn't talking. At least, he wasn't talking to his son. But he was talking to just about everyone else about his son. He was talking trash about Robert to anyone who would listen. And for many of William's enemies, this was the best entertainment they'd had in ages. I mean, it must have been because they were funding it. Robert had managed to keep living like a rock star, even though his line to his inheritance had, you know, kind of vanished. But as much as William's enemies were enjoying this, not everyone was having fun. Do you remember that great alliance of Hughes and Rogers that I mentioned last episode? Well, they're a good indication of how nervous the powerful members of Norman society were starting to get. And not just because of the terrible politics of this, but also because, according to Orderic, they were worried about their own family members who were starting to get embroiled in this escalating conflict. You see, a bunch of their sons, brothers, and kinsmen had joined Robert in his rebellion and were now living with him in exile. So like Matilda, they wanted their kids to come home. And as such, they wanted this conflict to end. And Orderick tells us that actually, Robert had also had enough of the conflict. While William wanted to fight this out to the death, Robert clearly felt otherwise, given his actions both on and off the battlefield. And so, the Hughes and Rogers did their level best with William on Robert's behalf. And they told the king, quote, "'Great king, we humbly approach your highness, beseeching you favorably to receive our supplications.'" Your son Robert has been led astray by the pernicious advice of evil counselors, from which violent dissensions and much mischief has arisen. He now repents his errors, but he cannot venture to approach your presence without receiving your commands. He humbly implores your clemency to take pity upon him, and he seeks to obtain your favor through our interference, who are your devoted subjects. He acknowledges himself to be guilty of many grave offenses, but he confesses them and promises to conduct himself better in the future. We all, therefore, join in imploring your clemency to extend your gracious pardon to your repentant son. Correct your erring child, permit him to return home, and mercifully accept his penitence. End quote. And William listened carefully to this advice, and then promptly told them where to shove it. He reminded them that what Robert and his compatriots had done was a death penalty offense. Meanwhile, Matilda was still in Germany, and she was hard at work. Or at least I assume she was. We really aren't told much about what was going on with Matilda or William during their separation. You know, other than that thing about the prophetic hermit who just happened to share all of Orderick's weird obsessions and biases. And so within the narrative, there are no details about what she was up to at this point. But when you look at the records and letters surrounding this event, it seems like her German holiday was more of a work trip. Because get a load of this. By spring of 1080, Matilda was back in Rouen. And she wasn't alone. Count Simon also dropped by for a visit. Though thanks to that political kerfuffle a few years ago, these days he wasn't Count Simon He was just Simon the Monk, or Simon the Hermit. Because if you remember back, Count Simon had married someone he wasn't supposed to, and it all got a bit messy. There was drama, there was war, and once things were clearly turning against him, he was asked to retire to religious life, which he did. Well, in spring of 1080, his life of quiet contemplation took a pause, and he found himself in Williams Court, alongside Matilda. And he was likely there to try and convince the bastard to back down on the matter of Robert. And Simon would have been a good choice for this. He was a friend. He'd been close with the family for his entire life. He was about the same age as Robert. And probably critically, he was a good example of someone who, in the end, set aside his own desires and did what was demanded of him when things started to go really bad. And we're told that during this meeting, Matilda and William had intense religious discussions with Simon that went on for ages. And I wonder what they might have been talking about. But Simon wasn't the only religious figure who was visiting William in the aftermath of Matilda's trip to Germany. Archbishop Richard of Bourges and Archbishop Warmund of Vienne also came to visit. And that was unusual. I mean, these guys aren't ones to hang around Norman courts. And it's possible that the reason that they were in court right now was because Richard and Warmond weren't just archbishops, they also served as papal emissaries. And we know that Pope Gregory was keeping a close eye on the House of Normandy. In fact, we even know the name of the guy who was keeping him apprised an Anglo Norman legate by the name of Hubert. We also know that the Pope wasn't pleased with how things have been going over there. And so there's a very good chance that those archbishops were in Normandy at the Pope's request. Looking at the records, as well as the various letters from this period, it seems like the basic argument that Matilda and her allies were making on Robert's behalf was that Robert was a good kid who fell in with a bad crowd. And so this really wasn't his fault at all. William shouldn't blame him he should blame his advisors. Now, obviously, not all of the Hughes and Rogers would have been on board with this argument because for some of them, their kids were the ones who made up this bad crowd that Robert was running around with, which would mean that they were being set up to take the fall. But ultimately, it's clear that everyone in attendance wanted this to end. And even some powerful figures who weren't in attendance wanted it to end. And I saved the best of the visitors or last. You see, in Easter of 1080, the royal court held their celebration on an island that was just to the south of Rouen. And we have a witness list. We see Matilda there. We see William there. We see those archbishops. We see a whole bunch of important people. And we also see Robert Kurthose. It looks like they finally got them in the same room together, you know, without drawn swords. And somehow a truce was established. Now, Orderick tells us that William was finally persuaded to accept peace because so many high-ranked individuals had come to intervene and urge him to chill the hell out. And honestly, he must have been under a lot of political pressure at this point, not to mention marital pressure, because his ideal outcome going into those negotiations was an execution. But instead, we're told that he forgave Robert, he forgave his companions, and he even confirmed Robert as his heir, saying that he would succeed to Normandy upon his death. Now, England wasn't mentioned, but we probably shouldn't read too much into that since succession politics during this time were kind of strange and soupy, and Norman opinions about England and its place within Norman politics were downright dismissive. But at last, there was peace within the House of Normandy. And we're told that the people of Normandy and Maine, who were subject to much of the violence and devastation caused by this family drama, were very relieved to learn that it was over. Yeah, I bet they were. And they weren't the only people who were pleased to learn about this truce. About three weeks later, in Rome, the Pope sat down to write a few letters. And based upon the contents of the letters, he already knew that the conflict in Normandy had been resolved which when you think about it's pretty impressive because three weeks is pretty quick. It wasn't like they could just call or send a text. But yeah, on May 8th of 1080, just a few weeks after that Easter meeting, the Pope dispatched three letters, one to Matilda, one to Robert, and one to William. Now the letter to Robert is the only one that actually references the conflict. The other two letters definitely avoid speaking directly about the subject. But the Pope is a bit more straightforward with Robert, and his approach is also kind of funny. He kind of does the medieval equivalent of saying, you know who was a cool dude who always listened to his father? Jesus. He also tells Robert that he should make sure to avoid bad counsel in the future. And then he quotes the Bible to emphasize the point. And so from the tone, I suspect the he's a good kid that was led astray argument was definitely the one that prevailed. Now, the Pope's letter to William was a bit more diplomatic. I mean, these two men weren't exactly on the best of terms. William had been withdrawing farther and farther from the church, and it had not escaped anyone's notice that he hadn't even been paying his tithes the way he was supposed to, nor showing obedience in many of the other ways that the church had expected him to. This drift away from the papacy was getting so bad, in fact, that it was starting to have an impact upon his subjects. For example, bishops and abbots of England and Normandy weren't visiting Rome nearly as often as they used to. And higher up, it gets even worse. When they appointed the new archbishop of Rouen in 1079, he didn't even bother to go to Rome to get his pallium. And Archbishop Lanfranc had been kind of giving Rome the cold shoulder and refusing to even make the journey. So this rift was getting deep. And I'm pretty sure that Pope Gregory knew that it would not go well for him if he acted like the bastard's youth pastor. So instead, he tried to flatter William's ego. He called him a beloved son. He told him that the papacy had special love for him. And then he advised William to persevere on the path of righteousness before going right back to flattering him. It was a classic sandwich approach to diplomacy. And considering what the ask was, that William needed to persevere on the path of righteousness, it seems clear that the Pope was trying to be as delicate and non-confrontational as possible. Though at the same time, I think he knew this would be a struggle for William. After all, you can't persevere if you're not encountering obstacles. And I'm pretty sure the bastard hadn't even seen the path of righteousness, much less walked it. But I have to hand it to Pope Gregory here. It is not easy to pat the back of someone who wants praise but doesn't deserve it, while also at the same time referring to an event while also not referring to that event. But hey, the Pope pulled it off. But it's the final letter that's my favorite one, because I think it gives us a hint as to what actually happened here. In the Pope's letter to Matilda, we learned that they'd already been exchanging correspondence. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the previous letter that Matilda sent, and I'm not sure if anyone does, in fact. But the Pope really appreciated that letter, and he thanked her. He also thanked Matilda for the offer of lavish gifts to the church. Now, donating to the church was not out of keeping with Matilda's character. But the timing makes me suspect that that offer of generous gifts were probably accompanied by a request. A request that, based on the presence of those archbishops and the speed of William's reversal on his whole, I want to execute my firstborn thing, well, it was probably granted. Frankly, this peace treaty had Matilda's fingerprints all over it. And I think she had just taken one of the most productive German holidays in history. I also suspect that she was the glue that was holding this incredibly dysfunctional family together this whole time. Because bless her, someone had to, and it sure as hell wasn't going to be the boys. Now, unfortunately, Matilda was still a woman living in a time when women had very little power, especially over their husbands, which meant there was only so much that she could do when it came to William. And sure enough, Shortly after the truce was established and the archbishops left Rouen, William went right back to talking loads of shit about Robert and, quote, often loaded him in public with accusations and reproaches for his disobedience, end quote. Now, Robert, for his part, seems to have stayed in court and dealt with the abuse. We see him appearing in charters on many occasions over the next several years. I mean, I suppose if you know that all of this is going to be yours in just a few years, you might as well just wait out the insults. Now, interestingly, when he does appear on those lists, a lot of times he's right alongside Rufus. And I wish we knew more about how that was resolved, if at all. Because man, that must have been a sibling rivalry for the ages. And as for how Robert felt about his dad, well, there was little love lost there. We're told that as William heaped accusations upon his son and publicly raged about his son's disloyalty, Robert kind of rose to the challenge and refused to attend to or obey the king. If you're already doing the time, you might as well do the crime. So there you have it. The family, such as it was, was reunited. Then again, this will only last as long as Matilda lives. At the risk of spoiling things, once she dies, Robert bolts. And who could blame him? So yeah, things were going great over in Rouen. And things weren't much better in England, for that matter. In particular, Northumbria was getting downright rebellious. And at the center of this mess was none other than Bishop-turned-Earl Walter. The Lotharingian Bishop Walcher first began his English career when he acquired Harold Godwinson's Old Abbey of Waltham in the aftermath of the conquest, and he began to profit off of it probably pretty quick because we're told he despoiled it. But he wasn't done yet. After the harrying of the North, he acquired the Bishopric of Durham. And just like at Waltham, he wasn't content to simply acquire new titles. He was also looking to expand his power base. And this time, he did it by exploiting the labor of the north. He quickly tasked the northerners with massive building projects for monastic buildings, which he planned to fill with monks of his choosing, almost certainly from the continent. Then, when William executed the popular Earl Waltheof and put the earldom of Northumbria up for sale, Bishop Walcher saw an opportunity to further advance his wealth and power, and he bought the earldom thereby seizing the ancient seat of power that the local dynasties of Northumbria had spent centuries struggling over and all had a stake in. And when he did that, Walcher went from an annoying bishop who mostly was just a problem for the people of Durham to a common enemy for pretty much all of the lords of Northumbria, which was not a safe spot to be sitting. Making matters worse, he wasn't that great at being an earl. This position had a specific duty, maintaining the peace. And Walcher was proving to be an absolute failure on that front. You see, the influx of newcomers was creating tensions that were proving near impossible to resolve. The Normans didn't exactly respect the English. And the English? Well, I don't think many of them were willing to let bygones be bygones after Sir Ralph killed Aunt Hilda and let his cousin move into her house. So we're talking about really deep rifts here that would require a savant in diplomacy to deal with. And that was not Walter and his crew. You see, Simeon tells us that Walter was amiable, but he wasn't much of a leader. And being nice to chat with isn't worth much when you can't even effectively lead your own people, especially when your people are warlike, as was the case with many of his supporters in the region. After all, one of the big rewards for being a conquesting knight was getting a plot of land from the people you were conquering. And so Northumbria was being populated by incredibly violent people and there were individuals who the surviving Northumbrians had an obvious beef with. And to give you a sense of how good this new earl was at soothing local tensions, we see Walcher riding around with a personal guard of 100 soldiers. So yeah, not exactly the best at diplomacy. And actually, that personal guard belies another of Walter's faults. He was a coward. Even though Walter had enough spare soldiers to have a personal guard on standby, he still failed to even mount a resistance against the Scottish invasion. And that was the final straw for one member of his council, a man named Ligulf of Lumley. Now, Ligulf was a member of one of the old Northumbrian dynasties. And as such, in the opinion of many of the Norman aristocrats, Ligulf's job here was pretty simple. He was supposed to be seen and not heard, thereby assuaging the anger of the Northumbrians over the rampant colonization that was taking place, while also refraining from getting all his dirty Englishness all over good, proper Norman politics. But the fact was that ligulf was still a northumbrian lord and he was old school so when bishop walter failed to defend his people from the scots ligulf spoke up and he had a lot to say not just about how that invasion had been handled he also denounced how the bishop's officers had been abusing the northumbrians any time they got the chance and well that was not appreciated by the normans some of whom were, you know, the bishop's officers. In particular, a kinsman of Walter's and also the bishop's chaplain simply could not believe that this dirty, worthless Englishman would dare criticize the great and wonderful Bishop Walter. And arguments ensued, but in the end, Ligolf was steadfast in his statements. So, to show everyone how battle-ready Walter's household truly was... These two got some people together, they rode out to Ligolf's Hall in the middle of the night, and they assassinated him, along with most of his household. Now this, it turned out, did not have the desired effect. Suddenly, a huge chunk of the North was on the verge of total rebellion, and Bishop Walcher, showing the kind of courage he'd shown previously, promptly locked himself inside Durham Castle and then sent out messengers to the kin of Ligulf, assuring them that he had nothing to do with any of this. In fact, he was so appalled by what happened, he banished the murderers, and he would swear an oath to that effect. So, an agreement was made. They would all gather at a council, and there oaths would be made by both the bishop and the kin of the slain Ligulf. And afterwards, there would be peace. And on the 14th of May of 1080, only a few days after the Pope sent those letters, the council met at Gateshead. And all the most powerful nobles and magnates north of the Tyne, as well as many of the lesser nobles and even common folk, had come to attend. So this was a huge gathering. And then Bishop Walcher, along with his enormous personal guard, arrived at the council And pretty much immediately, people noticed that something was off. Because riding alongside the bishop were the same guys who murdered Ligolf. What the f**k? Walter claimed he had nothing to do with the massacre. And he said they could trust him because he banished the people who were responsible. And yet here they were, in his retinue, in pride of place. What the actual f**k? And some of Ligolf's kinsmen, including the kin of Waltheof and the kin of Gospatrick, spoke to the assembled Englishmen raging about the absolute disrespect that they were being shown here. They spoke about how they'd heard that the murderers hadn't just been retained by the bishop, they'd been rewarded by him. And if a massacre of an English noble earns rewards, then what hope do the rest of us have? And now the crowd was really fired up. And Bishop Walcher, seeing this ticking time bomb, did the classic Walcher move and barricaded himself inside a nearby church and refused to meet with the English assembly. And hiding out right alongside him were the leaders of the massacre. They're named Gilbert and Lea Buena. There's also the hated Dean Leobuena, who had the reputation of being among the bishop's most ruthless and cruel advisors. And then, milling around outside, on guard, were the bishop's soldiers, who were likely many of the very same men that Ligolf had accused of abusing the Northumbrians. So, like I said, he wasn't great at diplomacy. But he did try. Apparently, messengers were sent back and forth between the bishop and the assembled Northumbrians. But, no agreement could be struck. Shocking. But honestly, the bishop probably should have tried a bit harder, like a lot harder, because this was the North, and they had their own ways of handling political disputes when diplomacy fails. Suddenly, a cry came out from the English leadership, quote, short red, good red, slay ye the bishop, end quote. Now, you might remember red is Old English for advice or counsel. So basically, they shouted, the easiest and best plan here is to kill the bishop. And all at once, the English surged forward, overwhelming and killing the soldiers standing guard outside of the church. And inside the church, Walcher panicked, and he ordered one of the murderers, his own kinsman, in fact, Gilbert, to go out there and deal with it. Not because he thought Gilbert was a gifted negotiator. No, Simeon is quite clear on this point. Walcher was hoping that Gilbert would be an effective sacrificial lamb and that whatever happened to Gilbert would blunt the anger of the assembled Northumbrians. And so Gilbert went outside and defended his liege. It didn't work. Gilbert was killed, but the Northumbrians weren't done. They wanted the bishop. So Bishop Walcher did the next best thing. He sent out the hated Dean Leofwinna, along with some of his clergy. Again, hoping to blunt their rage. And the clergy did as they were told and went to meet their fate. And the assembly killed Leofwina and his companions before returning to their calls for the bishop's head. So then, Walcher turned to Leofwina, his chaplain. And this was the other of the main orchestrators of that massacre at Ligos Hall. And he said, I'm ordering you to go out there. And Leo Buena told Walter exactly where he could shove his orders. They're not calling for me, Walter. They're calling for you. Why don't you go out there? So, Walter, running out of options, went to the door to plead for his life. And you know... Maybe he should have spent some time getting to know the people that he was supposed to be leading, because this was the North. Nothing in their history would suggest that once they've been pushed this far, they would just chill out because someone said, please. Northumbrian history is one long story of people giving you slack for a while, but once they reached the end of their rope, they were done. And so were you. This region could hold a grudge. Hell, it still can hold a grudge. Thatcher hadn't been prime minister for decades. And the year she died, they basically held two bonfire nights. So when the bishop went to the door and asked if they could just call it squaresies, he was pulled outside and executed. But the job wasn't done yet. That murderous chaplain, as well as who knows how many Norman soldiers and occupiers, were still hiding in that church. But the north had a solution for that problem, too. They set the church on fire. Eventually, the fire and smoke became too much for the chaplain and his companions, and they ran outside, right into the arms of the waiting northerners, who slew them on the spot. And the church wasn't the only thing that caught fire that night. The killing of Walter and his guard kicked up a general uprising within Durham. And Durham Castle was quickly put under siege by its own people. They were looking to finish the job. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail dot com. Thanks for listening.